Lord Jesus, we open our hearts to you this morning, the beauty of this a new day of life that you give us. We prepare our minds to receive your word today. We thank you for Dr. Scholler and for his commitment and for his ministry in our midst. We pray your blessing on him. May your Holy Spirit just continue to guide him and use him in your great kingdom building. And Lord, we pray this morning as we open your word together that your spirit will speak to our hearts and help us to know what it is and how it is you want us to live. So bless us with your presence. We come and we bow before you as your children and as your servants. And again, we thank you for our church here Pray your continued blessing and guidance on every aspect of our ministries here. Lord, we love you. We thank you for being our Savior, our Lord, and our God. We thank you for your divine gift of your life for us, of giving us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Karen. Thank you to all of you. This thing about tapes is frightening. One day I was at Green Street Restaurant with a friend waiting to be seated. And we were in the little area where you stand until you're seated and just talking. And some woman in the restaurant, seated at a table, got up from her table, walked to the front, came up to me, someone I'd never seen before. And she said, are you Dr. Scholler? And I said, yes, I am. And she said, I recognized your voice. I've heard you on tape. I don't know about traveling, but I did spend the week in Texas. It's been a long time since I've been in Texas. I was in Abilene, Texas, which is a very small, isolated town in western Texas, and you never saw airport security like you've seen it there. As my van driver said to me, we're so in the boondocks, and so out of touch that when the orders came down, we'd just follow them literally. <laughs> there were National Guards with guns all over. You could hardly get on the airplane. Well, this is our last Sunday on Hebrews. It, uh, I appreciate this opportunity to study Hebrews again. It's wonderful. And we come now to the, this last subject, which I've called Salvation and Perfection in Hebrews, which, in a sense, as I indicated, is a subcategory of the pilgrim journey of the believer in Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, as we now know, was written to a group of persons who were in danger of drifting away from their faith. And the author of Hebrews 
was very concerned about this and sent this sermon, this word of exhortation to them to encourage them and to warn them. And in that process, Jesus Christ takes a major role in Hebrews, is presented as the divine Son of God, as the great high priest. And Jesus is the one who has made the perfect sacrifice taken to the perfect Holy of Holies to provide eternal salvation. The believers, like all persons of faith, as described in Hebrews 11, are on a journey. They're on a journey to the eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city whose builder and maker is God, the city which is yet to come, and the believers are on that journey. Now, in the course of Hebrews' description of this journey, Hebrews has become famous or even infamous in the history of the church for its strong language that appears to say believers, persons who have been saved, are in danger of losing their salvation. Hebrews is very strict about this. And that caused theological problems already in the early church. One of the reasons why Hebrews was debated in the early church as to whether it ought to be part of the New Testament or not was because some liked its strictness. This is good. You fall away, you're out, sister or brother. And others thought that was too harsh. That wasn't representative of the love and mercy of God. So there was actually some discussion in the early church about whether Hebrews should be part of the New Testament. And it was complicated by the fact that the author wasn't named, and a book without an author might be considered suspect. And that's when Origen said, which I quoted the first Sunday we were together, as to who wrote Hebrews, only God knows. That gets quoted in all the textbooks in theology. But what doesn't get quoted is what Origen goes on to say, but if saying that Paul wrote it will help Hebrews make it in the church, let's say Paul wrote it. So it was attributed to Paul by some. That helped give it status. And the more strict view in the early church lost out for other reasons. You know, it was, here's an example. In a time of persecution, when the authorities, this is at the beginning of the third century, when the authorities are going to come and arrest Christian leaders and they're going to put someone to death, let's assume for the sake of argument they come to me and they say, all right, David, we're going to arrest you and put you to death. You are a Christian, aren't you? And I think to myself, you know, if I say yes, I'm dead. If I say no, I might be able to live through this persecution and I could still serve the church later. I could come back and teach another class. So I say, no, I'm not a Christian. And they pass over me. 
When the persecution ends, the church gathers and debates whether I can come back. And this half over here says, are you kidding? This man denied his faith in Christ. He's not worthy to come back. He's out. And this half said, no, God will forgive him. Let's let him come back. Now, we aren't going to let him in easy. He's got to attend every Sunday for three years before, without a miss before he can teach a class again. And that side won. Letting people back in, but with what we came to call penance, with proof of repentance. If you just let a person in, you don't know if their heart's really right. But you put up some standards so you know whether they really mean it. And in that whole process, the side of mercy, so-called, won, and that helped Hebrews. Then as time went on, Hebrews became involved in what we call the Calvinist, Arminian, not Armenian, Arminian controversy. This is related to the teaching of John Calvin and Jacob Arminius, two prominent theologians in the early Reformation period, especially John Calvin. John Calvin, who's the fountainhead of what we call the major Protestant Reformation, along with Martin Luther, shaped Protestant theology in a very deep way. And one of the teachings of John Calvin was that because God is sovereign, God is almighty, God is omnipotent, and God is all-knowing, that if God saves someone, then that can't be undone. Because if someone could lose their salvation, that would mean God's power wasn't really effective. And so John Calvin, among other things, taught what was called the perseverance of the saints. That is, if you were saved, became a saint, you would persevere, that is, you would always be saved. Also called eternal security. The Ar Arminians, on the other hand, emphasize that the Bible presupposes free choice, personal responsibility, and that if one turns one's back on God, God certainly isn't going to let that person in in the final analysis. And so they taught that it would be possible to lose one's salvation through disobedience, defection, turning one's back on God. And that great debate then tended to shape the whole Protestant tradition, the so-called Calvinist-Arminian debate. Now the Methodist tradition, what we call the Methodist tradition, or the Wesleyan tradition after John Wesley, the fountainhead of Methodism. The Wesleyan tradition tended in the direction of Arminian theology. And then out of the Wesleyan tradition grew the holiness tradition, so-called holiness tradition. John Wesley taught that holiness was, of course, very important, so you didn't fall away. And the, by the 19th century, the holiness movement was very strong. 
And it's in that movement that some of you may have heard of what was called sinless perfection, that it was possible for a person in this life to reach sinless perfection, by which was meant a state of holiness in which one did not knowingly sin. And that characterized much of the holiness movement and was a very strong part of various holiness denominations like the Church of the Nazarene, founded in Los Angeles in 1895, which was a breakaway from Methodism to be more strict on the holiness movement, for example. Out of the holiness movement, with its emphasis on the Holy Spirit, came the Pentecostal movement. After the turn of the century, early 1900s, and it too tended in the direction of Arminian theology. So, by the time we get into 20th century Protestantism, we tend to have two opposing theological camps, the so-called Calvinist camp and the so-called Arminian camp. They argued about many things, not just this topic. But this was one of the key topics. Was salvation eternally secure, or could one lose one's salvation? That became a major, major theological battle. Baptists, by the way, started out more or less on the Arminian foot in the early 1600s. But by 1660, 1660, the majority of Baptists moved over to the Calvinist side and tended toward Calvinism. Not completely, of course because Calvin taught infant baptism. But they tended to be Calvinist in a lot of their theology. So the tradition that we have as Baptists is somewhat mixed. There actually is a denomination still surviving called the Free Will Baptists, which would be Arminian Baptists. But the majority of Baptists were more or less Calvinistic. And that was true in the United States as well, in the most powerful group of Baptists in the early history of our country, the Philadelphia Association. And that shaped, more or less, our tradition. When I went to Wheaton College as a freshman many, many years ago, and I was sort of into the study of theology, those kinds of people became many of my close friends. In the dorms at night, believe it or not, Probably the most vociferous arguments we had were the Calvinist-Arminian arguments. I mean, this energized devout Protestants at that time. It's kind of waned now. It still exists. Now, it's in that context that the book of Hebrews has become also a battleground in the history of Protestantism in the last 400 years and how Hebrews is to be read and of course this has a lot of personal angst to it in the history of the church am I saved can I lose my salvation and so in Calvinist traditions like mine you went forward many times you know when the pastor gave the invitation hoping that one would take yeah, but you weren't ever quite sure. 
and people from the radical Arminian tradition. I remember when I was a high school kid, one of my my friends was from the radical Arminian tradition. He would call me up almost every week telling me he had lost his salvation that week. What could he do? Jeanette? Yeah. You might have lost it, right? And of course, at an earlier time, and this is part of what complicates the issue, and we'll come back to this, there was a time when people began to perceive, they thought, who was elect. Because if salvation is eternal and can't be lost, that meant God chose you. That's called election. And, you know, quite frankly, I know that Daryl isn't a lot, you know. So we want you to sit on this side because we're going to isolate the people who aren't elect. I mean, they can't make it. And some of you may know that, Jeanette, you have to help me, but the famous hymn writer, William Cowper, tell a hymn that everyone will know. Cooper, yeah. Can you remember one? All right. If you look in our hymn book under C-O-W-P-E-R, pronounced Cooper, William Cooper, you'll find wonderful hymns written by this man. Worshipful, devout. He believed he was damned. He didn't think he was one of the elect. So he agonized. He wanted to love God. He wanted to be saved. But he felt he was probably one of the damned. And you understand a little bit, I've spent quite a bit of time on this, but I want you to get a feel for the history and why the book of Hebrews then has been such a battleground. All right, that's the introduction. Second, I want to talk about the larger context in Hebrews. The seriousness and integrity of the warnings. Now, many of these passages we've heard, but I want us to hear them all at once. The first warning in chapter 2, in verse 3, poses a rhetorical question. How can we escape? How can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, the implication, of course, in such a rhetorical question is, if you neglect it, you can't. And the context in which that rhetorical question is raised is that in the days of Moses, people who neglected a message that came from angels were in trouble. How shall we escape if we have a message that comes from Jesus, the eyewitnesses of Jesus, God, and the Holy Spirit? That ups the ante. Not just angels, but God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and all the witnesses of Jesus. The second warning, primarily in 3.7 through 4.13, includes the following statements. The statements. So we see that they, meaning Israel, were unable to enter because of unbelief, 319. 
and so that no one may fall through such disobedience as theirs. 4.11 Followed by a description of God as the one who sees and knows everything. God even knows the secrets in our hearts. So you can't trick God. God knows it is implied whether you're disobedient or not. Third warning. 5.11 to 6.12 includes as its strongest words, for it is impossible to restore again to repentance one who is turned against the Son of God. 6.4 It is impossible to restore again to repentance. In my pilgrimage as a theological student, I don't know how many times I had a paper assignment in which I had to explain that verse. In the conservative theological tradition, this was one you had to solve if you were going to amount to anything theologically. It's impossible to restore to repentance. Fourth warning, the last one, from 1019 through 1229, includes these several statements. I've picked the strong ones. For if we willingly persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment. 10, 26, and 27. How much worse than those who rebelled against Moses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God? It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 10.31 See to it that no one becomes like Esau. He was rejected, for he found no chance to repent even though he sought the blessing with tears. 12, 16, and 17. And see that you do not refuse the one who is speaking, for if they, Israel, did not escape when they refused the one who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven? 12, 25 meaning God Almighty. Now those passages are supposed to frighten us. One must take seriously the language and nature of the warnings and not engage in the theological tradition that so quickly and so easily dismisses them as only rhetorical devices or as less than actual or real warnings, but just relatively mild cautions. I don't want to be unkind to any of my theological teachers, some of most of whom are still living, many of whom are still living. One of my most powerful teachers lives in Florida in retirement. He's in his 80s. He always took these warnings in Hebrews as just mild cautions. 
You'd hear these texts and be terrified. And you'd say, they don't really mean what they seem to say. They're just mild cautions. And of course, that was a word of comfort. That was a good word. But the more I read these texts, I thought, he's not right. And as you, know, you, could, you probably know me well enough to know I was a kind of rebellious student, and I started to question him. I even wrote papers against him. You know, he didn't like that necessarily. I actually saw him a year ago. I went up to him, and he didn't recognize me. He's fading a little. And then when I said who I was, he stood up and hugged me and almost cried. And he said, you know, I really love you. He said, of course, I still think, you know, you've gone too far. <laughs> He'll never forget that I've gone too far. We had a nice conversation. Now the two texts that probably are at the heart of this discussion are Hebrews 6, 4 to 12, and Hebrews 10, 26 to 39. Now I want to make a few comments on those two texts. Hebrews 6, 4 to 12. Now, the larger context in that first part of Hebrews is always the story of Israel, which in the wilderness, you remember, complained, entered into unbelief, and they died in the wilderness. They didn't get the rest. They didn't get to enter the promised land. And that story Hebrews builds on to say, hey, if you don't believe, you don't make it. That's the larger context. Now Hebrews 6, 4-6, to let me read the text because the whole, para- whole little paragraph that's occasioned so much discussion. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away since on their own they are crucifying again the Son of God and are holding Him up to contempt. That's strong. It's impossible to renew such persons to repentance, Hebrews says. Now notice how Hebrews described these people. It describes them as those who have been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Now, those descriptors, I would contend, are descriptors of salvation. 
Enlightened in the New Testament is almost always a term that means knowing God. Tasting the heavenly gift is a very strong praise. It says in Hebrews 2.9 that Jesus tasted death. That means he actually died. These people actually had the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit and the goodness of the word. And they tasted the goodness of God's word. These are descriptions of what we would call salvation. It seems to me that's absolutely clear. That professor I mentioned that I saw again a year ago once wrote an article on these characteristics. And he said, these don't refer to salvation. They just refer to someone who's kind of listening in. Kind of hears what the gospel's all about. And so when they fall away, of course, that's the end. But they were never participants. And he especially liked the phrase, tasted the heavenly gift. I can still hear him say, you know how sometimes you can just taste something, and then you spit it out. In one of my papers I wrote for him, I said, Jesus tasted death. He didn't spit it out. He actually died. So we had quite a debate. But do you understand that the Calvinist tradition, God bless it. Yeah, and this professor of mine was a Baptist. Still is a Baptist. But he... But that tradition tends to shunt aside this description in order to save the theological persuasion. Now it seems to me the problem we have to face is that these terms actually describe salvation. So as we noted above, the warning is genuine. It's serious. But Notice this also, that the author expresses absolute confidence in his recipients. He says in verse 9, We are confident of better things in your case, things that belong to salvation. It's clear that he expects his audience to make it. He says, I'm warning you. But then he says, I'm confident. You'll make it. I know you'll make it. Now that's very interesting. Hebrews 10, 26 and following. Another such passage. For if we willfully sin, after having received, received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who violated the law of Moses dies without mercy. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God? 
a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Recall those earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, notice the term enlightened that was also in chapter 6, and in verse 26, receiving the knowledge of the truth. Again, the language is the language of salvation. It's talking about people who have entered into the family of God. But this text also expresses confidence. Verse 39, the author ends up by saying, but we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and so we are saved. You see how the author, I mean, this does raise the question, in spite of everything I've said, of to what degree are the warnings rhetorical? I mean, he really hits them hard. And then he says, of course, you're not going to go there. I know you're not going to go there. Now, my concluding perspectives. Well, we're going to end early today. Such an easy topic. First of all, I want to say something about the nature of salvation and perfection in Hebrews I think will help us. Salvation in Hebrews is actually described as a future reality. Now this is stunning. This, this you really have to hear. Hebrews 9.28 Listen to this. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, that's the second coming, not to deal with sin, which he did the first time, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now notice the structure of that text. When does salvation occur? at the second coming. That is implied in almost all of the Hebrews' references to salvation. 114, 2-3, 2-10, 6-9, and in 5-9, salvation is called eternal salvation. In this sense, you understand Salvation in Hebrews is perceived of primarily as future. And one reason that we have a theological issue is that we are schooled in our theological tradition almost exclusively to think of salvation only as past. Salvation happened. And most of us come from the tradition where you were supposed to be able to give the day on which it happened. Right? You, you know that tradition? Poor Jeanette reports that she didn't know what day it happened and that was a problem she faced growing up. You know, my mother wrote down in my book the day that I said I received salvation. So, you know, I can remember that forever, August 7th, 1945. I mean, that's, 
that's forever emblazoned in my mind. Salvation is past. It's the assumption behind the traditional evangelistic question, brother, are you saved? And if someone doesn't say yes, if someone were to say, well, I will be, then you know right away, hey, there's something wrong with them theologically. You understand what's happened. Now, actually, in the New Testament, salvation is sometimes described as past, sometimes described as present, and sometimes described as future. In that sense, salvation is a process. Hebrews emphasizes the future nature of it. Perfection in Hebrews generally means either maturity or it means having reached the goal which is yet in the future. Person in Hebrews who has actually fully reached the goal is Jesus. He's the only one who's there. And everybody else in Hebrews, even Abraham, is still on the journey. Only Jesus has made it so far, according to Hebrews. That's why you look unto Jesus, who is the pioneer and the perfecter. That is, the one who made it in the journey of faith. Because Hebrews makes a strong contrast between the Levitical priesthood on the one hand and the work of the Christ, work of Christ on the other hand, that leads to certain things. The Levitical priesthood, remember, had to offer the sacrifices every year. Hebrews emphasizes that Jesus Christ had to offer the sacrifice how often? Once. Even the phrase, once for all, a very strong word. Only once did Jesus have to die. Only once did Jesus have to make the sacrifice. So his salvation, according to 5.9, was eternal. According to 10.14, Jesus' salvation was for all time. Now, this implies a framework a theological framework for Hebrews that I would call sort of all or nothing, or maybe more precisely, either having arrived or not having arrived. If Jesus only had to die once, and his salvation is forever, then if you drop out of the journey... You're not part of it. Because the only sense in which you have salvation is that if you actually do the whole journey, if you go the whole distance, if you actually get to where Jesus got. So that in a sense, in the Hebrews context of things, you don't lose salvation. You just never get it. You never quite make it. You drop away. 
And by definition, the only persons who get salvation are the people who step over the last threshold. So you don't ever lose it. You just drop out of the journey. Yes. Yes, that's in Philippians 2. That's a good text to remember. Thank you. Now I want to give you some theological perspectives as well. The tradition of eternal security, or the perseverance of the saints, that Calvinist tradition, tends, as we've said, to equate salvation with a past event. One is saved without denying the importance of that affirmation. I think a holistic biblical approach ought to lead us to see that salvation, in fact, is a process that has a past, a present, and a future. Thus, a saved person, by definition, is the one who makes it to the end. Now originally I got that insight from a very famous Calvinist theologian named John Murray, long deceased, who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary a bastion of Calvinism, still is. If you aren't an absolutely strict Calvinist, you're not really very welcome there, thank you. Westminster Theological Seminary, one of the strongest bastions of Calvinism in the United States. John Murray was their professor of theology. And he wrote a book back in the 50s, as I recall, entitled Redemption, Accomplished and Applied. And my professor, to whom I have alluded, assigned that book once, and of course I devoured it real short. I think I could read it in one day. And I love that book. And I learned from John Murray, who was a very subtle Calvinist theologian. He argued that, in a sense, you can't ever lose your salvation because you never fully gain it until you have it at the end. Redemption accomplished and applied. Accomplished in the work of Jesus, but not applied until you've made it to the end of the journey. Now, most Calvinists didn't really hear what he was But he was casting the net. It became very important in my own theological history of a way to reconcile, as it were, my Calvinism with the Bible. So such an approach allows us to endorse both divine election and the phenomenological perception of human choice and journey toward salvation. As a Calvinist, I still count myself as a sort of Calvinist. I can believe in divine election. That is, God chooses. God is in control. God is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from God. 
Now that raises a lot of theological problems, I know. But phenomenologically, that is, as we can observe life, people have choice, they have decision, they have responsibility, and they're on a journey. And as humans, we know that's real. What is true, of course, is that God knows who makes it, but we don't. And one of the problems that erupted in the history of the church was the breakdown of the true Calvinist teaching that divine election was what they called a secret decree. In other words, only God knew. And when certain Calvinist Puritans decided that they knew who was elect and who wasn't, that's when this doctrine got into a lot of trouble. And when someone decided, you're elect, you're not. You're elect, you're not. Or if I decided I was elect or not elect. That was a secret decree of God. Only God knows. And God's not telling. Rather, God presents to humans what we Baptists often say, whosoever will may come. The invitation is open. The choice is ours. The responsibility to obey is ours, as that famous others said it. But have you ever heard of Augustus Henry Strong? Some of you will have heard of Strong. He was probably the most famous American Baptist theologian in the English-speaking world. He taught at Rochester Theological Seminary in New York for many years. A.H. Strong. Bob, you read Strong's theology. You read the little print as well as the big print. That's, that was the great distinction. Strong's theology is about a thousand pages long and Half of it's in big print and half of it's in tiny print you can hardly see. And of course, real Baptist theologians read the little print as well as the big print. And Strong always pointed out, he was a Calvinist of sorts, that not only does God elect, but God determines the means to the end. And the means to the end includes human choice and human responsibility. It's important to have a high view of God's sovereignty. One, it seems to me, of the greatest values of what we often call Calvinistic theology that is biblically sound is a high view of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign. That is a bedrock of the biblical teaching about God and the bedrock of Christian theology. And there's no need to give that up. But it's also important to have a very serious and strong view of human responsibility. Discipleship is important. Faithfulness is essential. 
Obedience is essential. You know that parody of a hymn, Free from the Law, Oh, happy condition, now I can sin and still have remission. There was a very strong group of Calvinists in Illinois back in the 40s or the 50s. This story was told to me by a man named John Balma, still living, retired in Colorado. He lived in Des Plaines at the time. And there was a group of strong Calvinists who, in order to promote Calvinism, deliberately committed adultery and engaged in other sins to prove that you can't lose your salvation. Now, that's wild, I know. But the church has done everything, as you know. There's nothing someone in the church hasn't done in the name of God. That's a perversion, we would say. But it has happened. The Bible gives us no warrant to say that a person who disdains discipleship and obedience is on the journey. If we are on the journey, then we have a desire to be disciples. We have a desire to obey God. And that's how we try to live. And we are embarrassed when we sin. We want to repent when we sin. Now granted, sometimes for some people the repentance takes a lot of years. Doesn't happen in a day. But we need to hold seriously both the sovereignty of God and the seriousness of the journey. The Bible assures us that God has predestined us. As it says in Romans 8, God has chosen, God is sovereign. But the Bible also says, Jesus, Paul, Hebrews, book of Revelation, that we are called to faithfulness and obedience. And if we don't accept that call, then from a human point of view, we can lose out on the journey. We can fall by the wayside. We can be discarded. We may never take the final step into the threshold of salvation. Now that's hard for us to hear because of our Calvinist tradition, even as Baptists, we tend to resist it. I remember a man in our church in Illinois, Bill Goddard would remember him well, one of those parishioners who sometimes was a little bit of a thorn in the flesh. But bless this brother, he was devout. But I can remember prayer meeting after prayer meeting when this man would stand up and describe, I can't remember if it was his brother or his brother-in-law, who was a rank, infidel, sinner, and he'd stand up and describe all the sins of his brother and how terrible he was and everything that he did. But his closing line always was, but I know he's saved. He's one of God's elect, and so he's going to heaven. 
Now, one can appreciate, you know, that belief. We don't want to ever give up on anybody. But what was missing from that dear brother's theology, in my opinion, was my brother does all these things and what he needs to hear more than anything else is you've got to repent, brother, and obey God. Or you don't have any basis to say, oh, I'm saved, it's all right. You understand what I'm trying to say? It's a tension. It's all right. Theology has tensions. We all know that. The biggest tension, this isn't a big one. The big one is evil. If God is sovereign, why does the World Trade Center get demolished? That's the theological question we can never answer. If God is really sovereign, why is there so much suffering? That's a topic we can take up some other day. But let me stop. You want to comment on salvation? Yes. Oh, I, I don't think I ever used the word the salvation of Jesus, but what I did say is Jesus is the only one who completed the journey. Because Hebrews says that Jesus learned obedience, that Jesus became perfect through suffering. Jesus is presented in Hebrews as a real human being who was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, but he was genuinely tempted. He cried out to God and he learned obedience. He became perfect. He became perfect. Perfect, remember, in Hebrews means having reached the goal. Jesus became perfect. He wasn't at the goal when he started. He got there. And because he got there, we can be encouraged, Hebrews says. He understands exactly what we're going through. We can make it. We can get there. But that's part of Hebrews' emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Now, yes, sir. Well, you're 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 struggling with the tension, the paradox that once we try to rationalize it completely, we'll always be stuck. And we'll always fall on one side or the other. Is it my decision or God's decision? Yes. And part of what I'm saying is if we ever say it's not God's decision, I think we're in theological trouble. And I think it's easy to see the Bible over and over again attributes the initiative to God. Before we were ever born, God chose us. Before the world was created, Paul says, God chose us. That's divine election. The other side of the reality is we must respond. We must believe. We must obey. And without our commitment, without our belief, there will be no salvation. So you look at it that way, it's my choice. 
You look at it another way, it's God's choice. It's partly whether you have the view from eternity and heaven or whether you have the view from time and earth. And both are a real way to look at reality. Yeah, it's, it's a hard theological problem to solve. But the, the, the danger I'm trying to speak to is a conviction that because God chooses, I can live as I blank well please, and I'll still make it. That's never the teaching of the Bible. And then as a sub-point to that, Hebrews presents salvation as a journey, and so it can talk about if you drop out of the journey, you're out. Hebrews, I think, really means that. But Hebrews also wants to say, I know that's not true of you. You of all people are going to make it. You're not going to drop out. Hebrews says to his audience. And I'm going to help you not drop out. I'm going to tell you about Abraham and Moses and Joseph and all those folk and I'm going to tell you about Jesus and then I know you won't drop out. Especially if you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. You won't drop out then. Even if it gets tough, you won't drop out. That's what Hebrews wants to say. Yes? Oh, I think that that Arminian side, in its worst forms, tends to deny the sovereignty of God. Opens the door to one of the more recent debates, as you know, the so-called, I don't even know what name to give it, but sort of a big guy, big Baptist guy right now is Gregory Boyd. Are you aware of him? You know, he's sort of teaching, well, you know, God doesn't really know how things are going to go. God's waiting to find out. And so he's been accused of heresy. You know, in fact, this professor of mine that I told you about, he belongs to a group with this Gregory Boyd and has formally accused him of heresy. Yeah, I think that is heretical. But, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not into accusing people of heresy. But I think it's a serious misunderstanding of the very nature of God. And I think the Arminian point of view tends to belittle discipleship in its extreme forms by saying, you know, even when I think I'm doing well, i just got to go home and worry and worry and worry that I'm not doing enough. And that's why Calvinists like to say that Arminians really believe in salvation by works. And Arminians like to say that Calvinists believe in Salvation by sin. You know, I mean, so you, you understand how you can cut it both ways. Yeah, very strongly. Yeah. Right. My students in my class in Moscow, 
argued about, of course, we were doing Romans. So every time we got to a text in Romans that seemed to stress the sovereignty of God, the Calvinist students would cheer, literally in class, you know. And the others would boo them. I mean, it was a real theological debate. And I'd always play to whichever side I thought was against the majority of the class. I'd become the devil's advocate. Because both sides need to be heard. Yes. All right. The, what is sanctification? Now, you see, in classic Calvinist theology, sanctification is a totally separate category. You're saved. And then the question is, well, you know, it'd be nice to be sanctified. Now, that's a goal, but that's a totally separate process. In the sort of holiness tradition, salvation and sanctification is one package deal. And you enter into the process, and that process is sanctification. And Calvinists are bothered by that, saying you're mixing these categories and the journey, sanctification, which is the big theological word for meaning entering into the life of holiness, the life of obedience, becoming sanctified, is an important category. It's, it is being faithful to the journey. So I tend, I have a soft Calvinism because I would tend to blend salvation and sanctification. I don't want to undermine the importance of first decisions. Just like getting engaged, wedding day. You know, the wedding day doesn't make a marriage. But it's very important, isn't it? It's important to know that you made that commitment. And that's why sometimes we might say to a young couple, you know, you should get married. You should make the commitment. You two are on the verge of making a commitment. You're on, you need to make the commitment. You need to make the commitment. You need to say, I do believe. That's very important. Baptism is another important marker. There may be a lot of markers. The markers are important. They shouldn't be underestimated. They're life-changing. One needs to make a commitment. Jesus called people to commitment. But not only to commitment, but then to following through. And there are a lot of other categories. I mean, there's repentance, forgiveness, there's restoration. People fall away, can be called back. The prodigal son, ending the book of James, about looking for the strained brothers and sisters. All that's in there. Uh, that people do wander off and they need to be brought back. And so all of that's part of the sanctification process. I, we have good friends. This is a great story. I, I shouldn't tell, but when, when we lived in Massachusetts and when our kids were real little, I never went anywhere else on Sunday to speak. So I always taught an adult class in my own church every Sunday so we could be in church together. And one Sunday, this man showed up in class. 
real tall. You know, he was classic. Tall, he must have been 6'6". Six, six. Handsome as could be. Dressed to perfection. Looked like a rich man. And he dropped in and he, we didn't know who he was. He started coming every Sunday. Pretty soon we learned that he, he revealed he was a man with a spiritual hunger. He wanted to find God. He came to my class every Sunday. And he had a conversion. And every Sunday he sat with the poorest man in church. He sat in the pew with the poorest man in the congregation. No one else would sit with him because he reeked to high heaven. Apparently never bathed. And he was poor. And by this time we'd learned that this other man was a multimillionaire. And they'd sit together in the pew. Well, that's a long story. This, this rich man now has divested himself of all his money and he's a missionary in northern Australia with aboriginal people and I get an email from him about twice a week telling me how many people he has led to Christ he's also become a holiness convert and he believes in reaching sinless perfection and every one of his emails has a little prayer at the end that he asks to pray. And this, I get tons of missionary emails and I delete most of them. I just, I'd spend my whole life reading missionary emails. It's terrible, isn't it? But I always read his because they're short. They're never more than a half a page. And I always read his prayer out loud. And it's always a prayer for sanctification. That's really very beautiful. And Obviously, I have an attachment to this man since he's kind of started his journey in my Sunday school class about 30 years ago. And, um, but that sanctification is important. That's what we're called to. We're called to holiness. Calvinists also believe that. They believe we're called to holiness. But it's partly how you package the dynamic of the journey. Baptists, of course, we'd like to think we've got it together. And sometimes we do. One last comment. Okay. Maybe I was gone that Sunday. <laughs> well, that's good. Oh. Yes, you get the last question. Oh. Well, if I understand your comment, 
I mean, we're shaped by the context in which we come to Christ. So if you come to Christ in a Calvinist church, you become a Calvinist usually. Or you come to Christ in a Baptist church, you're Baptist or Pentecostal or whatever. We're shaped enormously by how we learn the faith, both directly and indirectly, right from the start. And most of us learn it unconsciously. We pick up the ideas without even being taught. And so we become theological creatures without knowing it. And we learn from sermons and incidental remarks and so on. Of course, maybe we should end too by saying, you know, today is so-called Reformation Sunday because this is the week of Martin Luther's great move. And so Pastor Goddard is going to preach related to Reformation Sunday today. And you might have an extra ear to see. You know, but I, I assume that Bill Goddard is where most of us are, a kind of modified Calvinist, a Baptist Calvinist, whatever that means. But that's sort of our tradition in this denomination, in this church, and so on. It's, uh, well, I hope this is helpful. This is one of the big questions of Hebrews. And when you read Hebrews, uh, let's come back with one last sentence for Hebrews. When you read Hebrews, it's a word of exhortation that says, don't fall into unbelief, but continue on the journey. And you can make it because Jesus Christ provided absolutely secure eternal salvation once and for all, and he traveled the journey. So God bless you. Thank you.